Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kendall Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 420 being recorded on the 13th of April, 2022 with special guest Sam Kogan. I am Sujit, and on teams with me, we have Evan, Russell, and of course, our special guest, Sam, who we're going to get to in just a minute. But first, let's just talk about all of the news this week. And uh, Russell, I believe you had some items in there, as and Evan as well. Yeah, there's a lot of updates this week, actually, over the last couple of weeks. Um, but most of them are kind of small technical things or things going GA, but there are a couple that kind of caught my eye. Um, one was a, a, a warning, really. So Azure AD Graph is being retired, and I think the date that was set was June the 30th next year. Um, and the, the the message is really, you should be migrating off the Microsoft Graph, graph which is where all the uh, feature updates are going into now. So um, they've extended the deadline anyway um, until the end of December 2022. Um, so that gives you another six months to procrastinate and uh, and push all your feature updates off. But do do get that stuff done because it's obviously important, and, and then it will be retired and uh, and no more uh, going into that. Um, the other one was the general availability of Azure Backup supporting Vault Archive tier um, for Azure VM. So this is this is quite important because um, the Vault Archive tier is a lot cheaper. Um, to put a lot more data in. So, so uh, rather than all the incremental backups, what it will do is put a full backup. So it will cost you more gigabytes in storage initially, um, but that storage is is a lot cheaper overall. Um, so, so yeah, just giving you that option of using Vault Archive instead of Vault Standard. Um, it's rolled out in GA in some selected regions at the moment, and it's it's being rolled out gradually over the rest of the world as well. Um, one other one that I saw. Um, which kind of feeds into something I saw that Evan put in there about Azure Data Explorer. Um, and it's a, it's a new feature which allows support for Azure private endpoints. Um, so you can now connect your ADX cluster through to, um, to wherever your data is uh, without, without using or exposing any public endpoints or exposing data over the public internet. Probably leads on to your point, Evan. You spotted something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well. Actually, this is um, this solves a real problem for me personally. There's a project I own internally that is heavily dependent on Custo and trying to keep source code control with uh, with um, uh, Azure Data Explorer queries and and functions is not there's not great a ton of great solutions out there. But now you can deploy your scripting as part of an ARM template for the for the instance itself. So that now you can sort in this place into the infrastructure as you know code uh, environment you know conversation today, but that really allows you to build that directly in. Um, the other thing I want to loop back around to your comment about the graph, um, and I don't I don't have the dates in front of me, but there's a whole bunch of classic services that are going to be retired over the next year, year and a half. Um, you know, classic web services, classic VMs, all, all that kind of stuff. So just a reminder to everybody, if you don't have that in your roadmap to migrate all of your classic stuff over into ARM, you need to build it in. We are getting awful. It, it was always sort of far out there. Yeah, it'll come one day, but it's it's coming up fast. 
Um, if you're still using those classic services, you should build put that in your roadmap. Evan, anything else you have for updates? Um, yeah, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, yeah. The um, yeah. Sorry. So we had the um, these are the EB and EDS uh, VMs. These have a, a huge increase in remote storage performance. Um, it's basically a new SKU for the VMs. And then also um, Azure Storage with Azure Active Directory. So Azure Storage Tables, excuse me, with Azure Active Directory access. So again, sort of bringing the whole hey, Azure Active Directory is always your token in. All right, you don't, you don't, we're trying to get away from using SaaS tokens across the board and move everything to service principles. And Awesome. You know, normally I get excited to talk about AKS updates, uh, but these days uh, the excitement has moved to Azure Container Apps, uh, which is the, the new AKS, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and some of the uh, new version, new updates uh, in preview now in uh, for ACA, uh, there's metrics uh, and alert support now for ACA. So you could set up all sorts of alerts uh, and thresholds and whatnot, and uh, based on your log analytic queries, there is help probe support for ACA now. So you can probe your containers for liveliness, et cetera, and you know, only react uh, once they are ready to go. Uh, there's a Visual Studio and VS Code support for ACA now. So you could deploy directly from nice. your code. You can push you know, your container, your, your code directly to an ACA uh, container. And I think the most exciting one is that um, managed identities is now supported in ACA. That was something that was hugely missing before. And I think that'll uh, be, I can see Sam's nodding. I know he, he's looking forward to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I want to just make sure that, you know, you know what the funny thing is that they just released the updates at 12 noon EST uh, on this day in the week. So they literally just came online. These updates just became public. <laughs> I knew about them last night, but I, was, I wasn't sure if I could talk about them. And literally five minutes ago, they, they went live on the Azure update site. So I was like, okay, I can talk about AC. Good, now. <laughs> good job cutting that deal. Say, guys, release it right before the show so we can talk. We can be the first. <laughs> Uh, okay, great. So that's a, that's a good round of updates. Uh, and uh, let's uh, turn the mic over to Sam. Sam, uh, Sam, um, and myself actually are working on an engagement right now, and that's how I came to know about him. Uh, and you know, he's uh, he's been an MVP, uh, Microsoft MVP for a long time. He's uh, got an amazing uh, blog site as well, which I have referred to often. I didn't realize that, but the, and uh, you know, that that was the same person. <laughs> Uh, who who uh, who I was talking to when I met him. So uh, happy that to have him on the show to share his insights into all things Azure. But Sam, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, let us know what you do, uh, the company that you work for, uh, and also uh, what your passion is in Azure. Yeah, sure. So yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I'm Sam. I'm a solutions architect for a company called Willis Towers Watson, or actually now WW. We changed the name recently. I got a shorter email address, which is great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've been working there for ooh, about 11, 12 years now, um, doing a lot of cloud and Azure related stuff, building out platforms and infrastructure and, and so on. So I'm an IT pro by trade, not, not really a developer, um, but the, the lines are blurring a lot <laughs> these days, particularly with the things like infrastructure as code. Um, and yeah, I'm an Azure MVP as well. So I've been an MVP for five years, I think it is now. Um, so I do quite a lot of community stuff in terms of uh, blogging, as you mentioned, but also conferences and uh, and and community events and those sort of things. So it's it's great to be able to sort of work with the community and help help other people get up to speed with Azure and and learn about all the fantastic cloud things going on. 
it's good to uh, it's good to have somebody who's speaking the same language as me. I don't have to translate on the fly today, which is really nice. True, true, true. Those that are uh, on YouTube and, and listening to this, I uh, just like to explain Sam's background. He's got a whole load of um, really really nice models. So there's a bit of Star Wars and uh, and all sorts of other Lego models, but he's got his MVP trophy and pride of place behind him there. <laughs> Then maybe you could just spend a few, maybe a minute explaining what WTW does and that'll give us some context in the discussion as we go forward. Yeah, sure. So WTW is a, a pretty big company. So I work in a, in a specific big in the financial services uh, section. So we do a lot of work with building applications for modeling risk. Um, so helping insurance companies sort of model you know what's going to happen in the future how you know how much are they likely to spend in in paying out on insurance claims uh, you know how much are they going to have to pay for car insurance claims and all that sort of stuff so we do a lot of uh, predictive modeling um a lot of sort of random number generation and and all that sort of stuff so it's a lot of very complicated maths that i really don't understand uh, <laughs> but we build a we build software to do that, and it, it's you know sort of the software is fairly complicated, and we do a lot of sort of intensive calculation stuff. So we do quite a bit of you know large grid compute, um, you know very in depth stuff, which is why the you know the cloud has been a big thing for us over the last few years because being able to scale up infrastructure to to deal with these big batch jobs um, has been really beneficial. You know before you had to buy you know big big sets of infrastructure that potentially would sit idle for half the year um now we can just you know get as much infrastructure as we need for doing the job and then turn it off when we're done um and so that's been that's you know one of the reasons why we've really embraced doing cloud cloud services within ww so you know the the word infrastructure as code uh, like you mentioned earlier uh, has been thrown around for quite a while and i i it, like the definition of the context in which people use it varies quite a bit like you know sometimes you're writing a like a little script all oh, infrastructure of code i'm like you know come on not everything is infrastructure as code you know uh that's a utility script or whatever you want to call it but, but you know let's set us straight and tell us you know what is your view or definition of infrastructure as code how should uh how should cloud architects or uh, cloud engineers think about that yeah so as you say, infrastructure code could, I suppose, be any sort of script or anything you get that deploys infrastructure. But in today's world, we really think about is, is using infrastructure as code to declare your cloud infrastructure. Um, and and really, there's a, there's a few tenants that you sort of look at it and think, yes, that's infrastructure as code. So things like using a declarative approach. If you look at any of the major IEC languages, it's all declarative. You're saying what you want. You're not defining how you get it. You're just saying, I want a VM or a storage account or, or so on. I don't care about how it gets created behind the scenes. Um, I just want that. And that's the kind of the big difference between that and writing a bit of PowerShell or Bash or so on, where you're you're just writing a do this, do this, do this. It, you know, that's that's kind of one of the, the big differences between them is just being able to declare what you want. There's also a few other things like, you know, things being idempotent. You, you nowadays, if you run an infrastructure as code uh, file, you expect that if you run it once or you run it 10 times, you get the same output and you're not going to break things by running it again. Whereas, again, if you go back to your PowerShell script, unless you spent a lot of times adding in if statements, you say, you know, if it exists, do this, if it doesn't do that and so on. If you don't do that, then the second time you run it, it's going to behave differently to the to the first. So idempotency is, is kind of another really important tenant of, of infrastructure as code. Um, those are kind of the, the biggest things um there's a few other you know lots of little bits and pieces but those are kind of the biggest things that jump out at me which define is this infrastructure as code or is this just a script and does oh sorry go ahead Sajid. 
I was just going to ask follow up, like, you know, what are some of the, uh, I guess, the the tools that someone should use for ICO? You you may be, you have, you have, you have uh, tried and uh, would like to suggest here. Yeah, so there's a few, there's quite a few tools around now, and they kind of fall into two camps of the sort of cloud native, not cloud native, but cloud specific tools, and then the more generic tools that go across clouds and other platforms potentially as well. Um, so if we if we focus on the Azure world, um, you've got ARM and Bicep, which are the, the sort of Microsoft tools that are designed specifically to work with Azure. They don't do anything else. They just deploy Azure resources. Um, for those who aren't familiar, ARM or Azure Resource Manager templates were kind of the original um, Microsoft infrastructure as code tooling where you wrote that in a, in a JSON format. Um, recently, over the last couple of years, Microsoft have released a, a new tool called Bicep, which is built on top of that. Um, which uses a more abstracted language and is perhaps a bit simpler to, to use and easier to, to get to grips with. Um, essentially doing the same thing under the hood, but they are the Microsoft specific ones and they work with Azure. Whereas there are some, some really big tools like um, Terraform is probably the most popular one you hear about, um, which is made by a, a separate company called HashCorp who uh, work across clouds. So you can deploy resources in Azure, um, in AWS, GCP, and non-cloud things like Kubernetes clusters, um, GitHub, all sorts of different different providers, um, and you know, allowing you to use the same language across all of those. Um, another tool, uh, Pulumi, is a similar approach, um, cross-cloud piece, not quite as big as Terraform, but it is gaining popularity, which is a similar sort of thing um, across clouds and providers as well. Those are probably the big ones. There's a few other smaller um, pieces. There's one called Pharma, which is an Azure specific one, but as an open source project. Um, yeah, those are, those are the most common ones you hear about. It, it, and and I don't necessarily, I mean, I suspect there's probably some elements of a religious debate here, you know, but when you were talking about the scripting versus the declarative model, right? It, you know, when you think about, you know, and I, I sort of talked about it with the, um, the um, Azure Data Explorer, Thing where I'm, I'm defined, declaratively defining, hey, I want to um, create this this uh, Azure Data Floor instance with these tables and and this structure, but then I do need to run some scripts to create my tables and the like. Is is the fact that I'm doing that mean I'm blurring the lines at that point, or is is there just an assumption that for an infrastructure as code level, there's going to be things that you you just can't do declaratively because of some you know very legitimate reason? That I I mean I'm I shouldn't look at, does that mean that I failed at infrastructure as code if I have to do that point? Or, it, I mean, I guess that's what I mean. And it's sort of, it feels like we could get into the religious piece, but like, it, should I always be looking at, you know, hey, it's a script, figure out a way to remove it. Hey, it's a script. Like, is that the iterative approach I should be looking at? Yeah. So in my view, I always try and aim not to have scripts in okay. my infrastructure code, but it's not always possible. Uh, and I don't think you could say it's failed. I think there are just some things that aren't, you know, aren't feasible. Yeah, back in the early days when you when we looked at uh, ARM templates, you could deploy a storage account, but you didn't used to be able to deploy a container into right. into a storage account. And so the only way around that was was to run a script or some sort afterwards. Um, now you know they've, they've introduced containers in as a, as an ARM template um, piece. So you know things are expanding and changing over that. Um, some of the third party pieces like Terraform, um, obviously with their benefit that they're building sort of an abstraction, they can then layer on things on top of that, which then expose them as, as infrastructure as code as well. So the storage account one was a good example. Terraform mm -hmm. had the ability to, to add a container before ARM did, but all Terraform was doing under the hood was calling the REST APIs um, to, to do that, but they abstracted it. Um, right. And yeah, so it's not always possible. And a lot of the time I will find that at some point I have to break out of 
the the arm template and do something like a script one of the one of the pain points is is whether you can do that still as part of the template um, or whether you have to then use some sort of extra orchestration tool on top of your template to ah. then run the script. Okay. Um, the things like ARM, ARM and Bicep now have this deployment script functionality, which lets you run a, a PowerShell or Azure CLI script as part of your deployment. It based behind the scenes, it spins up a container instance to run it, but it, it lets it be part of that workflow rather than you having to orchestrate it. It's still not as nice and it has its downsides, but it, it means you can still encapsulate that in a single piece. Um, similarly, like Terraform and Plume, both have the ability to sort of break out and do a local exec of something as part yeah. Of, yeah. of the deployment. DSC and um, everything would be another yeah, exactly. scenario where you see that. Okay, so yeah. so so then I, so then I, I think then what I what I'm hearing is that the key is to be striving for that. And if you if you can't achieve it all the way, figure out if you can do it away so that it's part of your declarative framework rather than okay, I declare all these things and then I go off over here and and run the script, right? You, you sort yeah, of want to make it exactly. part of the whole package. If I'm Try and put it together, right? but also try and make it at least idempotent as well. That's one okay. of the big things. If you look at the docs for deployment scripts, there's a big warning about this because every time you run your template, potentially your script's going to get rerun as well. And while the template right. is idempotent for you, the script won't. So you need to write that script to at least be a way to, again, put some if statements or something in that says, if it already exists, I'm not going to do anything this time or, or something like that. Okay. Okay, so be aware, but it, you know yeah. I haven't failed if if I end up still sort of being packed into a corner somewhere. Okay. No, once you once you get to the point where you're doing you know some things more complicated than a than a network and a VM or something like that, you're gonna you're gonna end up hitting a point where there's something potentially you can't do just with pure IAC. Okay. Sam, while you're talking about item phones again, I'm curious, what are some ways? that you'd recommend to validate these sort of infrastructure as code templates? Because every time if you wanted just a deployment, it could take a lot of time. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a, a big tricky topic to deal with. So one of the, one of the nice things about IAC is that it, it is code. So potentially you can write tests. Um, you know, you can, you can use testing frameworks to, to look at your code and it depends what language you're doing. Some of them are more suited to it than others. Um, for things like ARM and BICEP, where it's not a, an executable language, then a lot of the time to test things, you've actually got to deploy the resource, which can take up quite a bit of time. Whereas if you look at something like Pulumi, which is a, similar to Terraform, but is written with actual real programming languages, so C Sharp and Go and so on, you could actually write unit tests with that and you can mock things and you can do so if you, similar things that you would do with a, with a standard application. Um, and so some, some languages are more amenable to testing than others but you can test pretty much anything but sometimes the testing will involve you deploying the resources which takes time costs money um and so you've got to kind of factor into that you know how how much effort do you want to put into that and how much cost to make sure that it's going to meet your your needs um there are certain things like um arm and bicep now have this what if command which allows you to try and look at what you're going to get before you deploy it um, so the same with Terraform and, and Plume, have a preview approach, and that's a really useful tool for testing because you can you can get the data out of that and compare it to what you think you should have got and see if you can figure out you know if there are any differences before you do that. Similarly, there's tools like Chekhov, which is a, a testing framework, a security testing framework, which allows you to validate your um, what you're deploying against best practice and, and common infrastructure mistakes. Um, there's the ARM template test toolkit, I think is the right acronym, um, which allows you to, to test your ARM and biceps against uh, sort of best practice in terms of how you've written the scripts. Um, so there's some, there's some really useful tools you can use there to try and sort of catch things early. 
So I think, um, you know, you're talking about the template and the declarative bit, which is all great. Um, but the thing that's kind of in my mind is this phrase about friends don't let friends write, mouse click and publish, right? And that's all about the governance bit and automation and making sure that there's no configuration drift of, of what you've deployed or produced in your template versus what goes on. How important is that automated deployment piece? And as well, I guess, there's a bit about um, the, the services that, that we produce where we're encouraging citizen developers, we're encouraging people to use the UIs to build stuff, and they're going straight to a portal and, and typing stuff in. So you can go to, to Azure Functions and go and do that. You can go in Power Automate or Logic Apps and go and do that. How, how, do, you, how do you stop people doing that? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 difficult. And sometimes you don't want to. I mean, you, you kind of want to give people a playground where they can actually test things out and try things out. But you know, you kind of want to ring fence that and make sure it's in a development environment and it's 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 secure and so on. Um so you can get to the point where you start using things like Azure policy um and those sort of things to actually decide what can be deployed uh, and how it can be configured. Um, so you can you can write a lot of best practice in Azure policy to say, you know, if you deploy a storage account, it's got to have HTTPS only, it's got to have private endpoints configured, all that sort of stuff. So you can you can build your policies that so that it will guide people to doing the right thing anyway, um, and even use the um, the ability to actually rectify what they deploy as part of the policy so it will fix problems for them as well um so that's one area you can go down is, is making sure that you you've got the right policy and approach in place to, to sort of guide people down the right path i guess the other point is once you get to the point where you're deploying resources particularly into production um you need a more governed process to do your deployment having people write the template and deploy it from their desktop is fine for development when you're still writing the template and trying to figure out how it all works um, but as soon as you want to get into that sort of production approach, you want to have a governed process for how changes get into that template, how they actually get deployed. You know, ideally, you don't want the person who wrote the template actually to be the one who has the permissions to deploy it. You want some approach to do that. And again, we're back now at the fact that this is, again, just code. So you can use pipelines. You can use Azure DevOps or Jenkins or whatever your DevOps tool of choice is to build pipelines. That can do run the deployment they can run as a, as a service principal or a managed entity that's got the right permissions that you don't have access to um you can check all of your scripts into source code so you've got a governance around who made changes and you know, implement a pr process to to uh to govern when changes are uh, coming and even you know, start getting into a, a fully automated cicd where someone checks in a change goes through a pr does run some tests as part of your PR. If they succeed, it gets approved and automatically rolled out into production. You could you could go as far as that um, because it, again, it's, it's just running some code. And, and sorry, is that is that are, the, are all services covered in Azure for doing that kind of thing? Because you know we talked about um, the the scripting within Azure Data Explorer earlier on. That's only just come on. Are, are there other problem areas that you see? And yeah. How do you deal with the Power Automate side of things as well, or is that is that out yeah, of so I'll come on to Power Automate stuff in a minute, but uh, yeah, so for the most of the Azure services, and nearly all of the Azure services on the control plane level are covered by ARM. Um, where it gets a little bit tricky is when you start looking at the data plane, um, where some things are and some things aren't. You know, storage account containers are, are technically data plane, they're covered, but some of the data explorer pieces you were talking about there and, and those sort of things aren't. Um, and that's where you potentially end up looking at, at scripts and other things to, to work with the data plane side of things, um, which can make it a, a bit tricky. There's also a, a big separation between Azure and Azure AD. 
So they you know, ARM, ARM does not cover Azure AD. Um, and so if you want to deploy applications or use those sort of things, um, then you're, you're looking at scripting or, or alternative approaches like Terraform, which has a, an Azure AD library. Power Automate and Power BI, again, are a, another separate beast because they're they technically fall under Office 365, I think, um, which is a completely separate piece. So so there, there really isn't an easy way to do things like Power Apps using infrastructure as code. Um, it's even quite difficult just to do code in general for, for Power Apps and, and checking into version control and those sort of things. So that's an area where absolutely if you've got these citizen developers, it's, it's quite difficult to push them down this path um, because it's not as well formed as, as plain old infrastructure. Yeah, just a quick I, I, I have to say oh, there, there has been a lot of in that area where now there's the idea of solution and there are a lot of pulling integration, for instance, with Visual Studio Code and with Power Automate? Uh, uh, with Power Apps. Oh, with Power Apps. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. Um, but yeah, really, I think from the cool. Power Apps side, they're also trying to integrate a lot of the same concepts that we are are used to in terms of source control, in terms of DevOps, in terms of, but just wanted to add that, that there, there's been a lot of events and obviously there's more to go, but it's been, it's been a better experience. Oh yeah, it's definitely better than it was. Just wanted to quickly follow up on the, the question Cynthia asked earlier about how you validate the code. I, I've been using the VS Code extension for ARM, uh, for, for ARM templates, and it's pretty good. I, it you know caught a few errors that I had, some some incorrect syntax. Uh, so it does try its best to help you there. So that's one uh, one possible help uh, you can have. But uh, the question I had for Sam is, uh, so if, uh, you know, if I'm somebody new that's coming into Azure in, into this uh, DevOps role, uh, what's the what's the best tool? You mentioned a few tools we could use. What would you recommend is the kind of easiest tool for someone to get in to say, okay, you know, at least I have some infrastructure as code, right? As opposed to doing it through the portal and uh, exporting yeah. an ARM template from there or whatever. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> yeah, but the easiest place to start today is Bicep. That's no no question, I think, is, is the easiest way to get started. I wouldn't recommend anyone picks up ARM templates anymore. Um, Bicep has now got pretty much 100% coverage of what ARM can do, and it's a lot easier to use. Um, so if you're starting fresh, you go down the bicep bicep path. Um, things like Terraform and Pulumi and so on are very powerful, and you know, particularly if you need to do more than just Azure, they can be very beneficial. But they have a much steeper learning curve, particularly because of their implementation needing a state file. You've got to deal with how you manage that state file and so on. The state file brings a lot of powerful capabilities. Don't get me wrong, but it, you know, as a as a beginner, it can be a bit daunting to get up to speed with how that works, how how to store the state file securely, how to how to deal with previews and that sort of stuff. What, what is uh, the state file? I'm not familiar yeah, sorry, with it. Yeah, so, so Pulumi and, and Terraform have this state file, which is a means it uses to record what it's done. So when you do a deployment with ARM or Bicep, it deploys your resources and then forgets it ever did anything about it. Um, so if you run it again, it will basically just goes and runs it and deploys it and looks at what's actually in Azure and compares, not compares, yeah. but even you know, yeah. makes changes to those. Whereas Terraform and Pulumi know what they did on a previous deployment. And the reason they do that is because then they can do things like uh, the preview command, which allows them to compare what you're asking it to do now to what it did last time without having to go and read all of the resources in Azure and getting all the details directly from those. Um, but also it allows it to do a, a delete or a destroy, uh, which is quite a powerful uh, thing for cleaning up, particularly when you're doing development. With ARM or Bicep, because it doesn't know what it 
did after it's done. Um, when you when you if you want to delete all the resources you deployed, you essentially have to go in and either delete them manually one by one or delete the resource group that, that they're in. Whereas with Terraform and, and Paluma, you can run a destroy command and it will clean up what you did. Um, and that's quite powerful, particularly if you're doing um, as your AD, which is one of the areas I found a big benefit was often when you deploy an application, you're also creating a service principle or, or similar with as your AD. Um, and when people come and clean up and they delete the resource group, they always forget to go and delete the service principle and you end up with hundreds of service principles kicking around that, that have expired keys and nobody nobody remembers what they were for. Um, whereas if you create that with with Terraform or, or Pulumi, it will clean them up for you as well. Um, so that's the state file has some quite powerful capabilities in terms of that. Um, but it, you've got to manage that state file. That state file basically contains all the information about the resources you deployed, including secrets, um, you know, storage keys or, or things like that. Um, and so you need to make sure that you're you're storing them correctly, you're encrypting them properly to make sure they're secure and so on. So it's a lot of extra overhead, um, but it has its uses. You know, we've talked a lot about uh, infrastructure as code and uh, I think you've done a masterful job of uh, clarifying that for us. But I've also uh, heard about configuration, right? Uh, configuration is another uh, item that sometimes gets blurred with infrastructure or maybe it's not infrastructure. Uh, how do you view configuration versus infrastructure? Yeah, so configuration as code actually potentially has been around or been a thing longer than infrastructure as code. Um, and it's configuration of code in my mind is about how you how you configure the resources that you deploy with infrastructure as code. And in particular, the primary example of configuration as code is virtual machines um, or, or you know, even actual um, physical machines as well. Um, and so some of the common toolings in that area are things like Puppet and Chef and Ansible. You've probably heard of most of those. Um, and they're, they, they're, they're designed to run an agent on a machine and you configure how the operating system and all the applications that run inside that machine are, are set up. Um, and so usually there is a line where you, know, you use infrastructure as code to deploy the VM and then you use configuration as code to configure it. And potentially there's a handoff between the two. Um, it's very common to see, particularly in Azure, there's an extension for most of those things. So your infrastructure as code deploys a VM, it installs the Puppet extension onto that VM and passes in some parameters for it potentially. And then, then, then Puppet takes over and configures the internals of, the, of that VM. Um, PowerShell Desired State is another example of a sort of Microsoft native tool that, that can do this, this, the same sort of thing. Um, you Nowadays, you do see a bit of blurring of the, of, of the line between that, whereas, you know, where you've got infrastructure as code that can do some configuration level work on, on the VM. Um, you know, there's, there's tons of extensions you could deploy now for a VM, which will actually configure the OS and, and install some software or, you know, there's a, one which will install certificates on the machine, for example, which has traditionally been a configuration as code approach. There is a bit of a blurred line, but even going the other way, you've got Ansible now, which, which can do Azure resource deployments. It's not necessarily the best tool for the job, um, but if you you know if you're already using it for lots of other things and you want to sort of tack some Azure deployments on the end of it, it can do it. So yeah, it's a bit of a blurred line now, um, but they yeah there there are two different camps. And if you do something like AKS and you use Flux to to pull in the rest of the deployment, is that considered configuration then? Is that yeah, an so example of configuration? Yeah. Yeah, so Kubernetes, I think, is, is the true blurred line of this whole piece um, in that you, know, you can deploy a Kubernetes cluster with Terraform. You can also then deploy the resources onto the Kubernetes cluster with, with Terraform, or you could install the Flux extension and have that pull the resources on it. Um, and so that, yeah, 
infrastructure and configuration in, in Kubernetes are very much blurred together now, and you can use any any of the tools to do most things. I think now. Just reflecting on that, when I when I'm thinking about the things that are really complex to set up and configure, they tend to be more towards the IaaS and the infrastructure side of things. So the, the, once you get into the to the depths of Kubernetes, I know it gets really complicated, but we abstract that out with container app services, or if you look at VMs and you go to app services, you've got a lot more. Um, I guess you've got a you've got a different level of control that's exposed to ARM that you can control within that control plane, rather than having to go into the thing to try and tweak stuff that's not exposed. I guess so. Yeah, exactly. And and ACA is a great example of that compared to to Kubernetes. Yeah, ACA is a purely ARM deployed resource. You are configuring everything that you deploy, including which version of the containers and so on, through the ARM fabric, and so you can basically do the whole thing with an infrastructure as code approach. Um, you're paying for that in the fact that you can do less customization and it's not as complex. Um, but if all you need to do is get a container deployed and run, then that's potentially the simpler approach. Yeah, less to go wrong, I guess, as well. Yeah, exactly. Sam, you mentioned Terraf um, languages like Terraform and Pulum are more cloud agnostic, meaning that it could be used for Azure, AWS, GCP. What is that experience like? What are what what can be shared across different clouds, and what are specific to individual clouds when you're using something like Terraform? Yeah, so that, that's a really important question because I think when you talk to people about this initially, you kind of get the impression that you could you could write a, a piece of infrastructure as code in Terraform and then run deploy the same code on AWS or GCP or Azure, and that's not the case. And an Azure VM in Terraform is a different bit of code to a to a to a, a GCP VM um, or an AWS VM. They, you know, it, there is a different object for each one. Um, so you're not getting that kind of reusability at the code level. But what you are getting is you're using a consistent um, language across all of your clouds. You're using um, a consistent method of actually running and deploying the resources. Um, and you can and you can integrate them into the same project. So you could absolutely have a Terraform project deployed, an Azure VM, and then an AWS VM, and, and got them talking to each other. Um, yeah, a really common use for for Terraform and, and Pulumi is Kubernetes. You know, how you want to deploy a, an AKS cluster, um, and then you want to deploy some containers onto that AKS cluster. You can do all of that with Terraform or Pulumi um, in one project. Um, because it, it can talk to both of those resources, whereas with Bicep you can deploy the AKS cluster, um, but at that point it, it doesn't it doesn't know how to talk to Kubernetes, so it can't go any further than that. Now there are ways around that using things like you know, extensions on on Kubernetes to install um, things like Flux, and then have that pull the resources in and, and so on. So you can you, it's not, not a hard stop at that point, um, but with with the the third party languages you can you know they know how to talk to both. It, it sounds like as I as I listen to you and I go back to what we were talking about earlier, this is still evolving. You know, it, it, it's different. You know, like you said, different clouds have sort of different implementations even within the common tools. But it's really about the mindset. And and you may accomplish it a little bit differently for GCP or for AWS for the same thing or, you know, an ISVM versus an app service. But it's you're sort of shooting for the goal of, hey, I, I want everything to be declarative and I'd impose it. Now, how yeah. I do it, which tool I use, all that sort of flexible and variable depending on, you know, what yeah. it is you're actually going to do, you know, for your specific project. But it's it's sort of where you're shooting for that North Star, really. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when you're writing these things, yeah, the language may di be different, but you are you're writing it in a very similar way. You're declaring the resources. You're you're running through a process. You're you're looking at dependencies and all that sort of stuff. And it's you know, the, the approach is very similar. The language is different, and you know how you how you use those resources. You know how you do loops and if conditionals and all those sort of things that are different and are nicer in some languages than others. Um, but but the actual what you, you know how you're thinking about it is is very similar. Awesome. Well, Sam, this has uh, been very enlightening. Thank you very much for sharing all your insights into infrastructure and uh, deployments. Uh, appreciate that. And uh, any last question for Sam before we let him go? Um, no, oh, this is this is great. I, w I was going to make a joke about Alumi, but it was too cheesy. So uh, <laughs> sorry. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not actually heard of Alumi before. Is it is it um, comparable with Terraform? Is it is it going for that kind of space? Yeah, exactly. So it's very similar in terms of the fact that it can do multiple clouds and other sorts of things and a provider based approach. Its main selling point over over Terraform is that you can write in actual real programming language. So the stuff I write tends to be in C sharp, um, which means you can use, uh, you know, real language uh, paradigms like for loops and, and if statements and, and all that sort of stuff in your code. Whereas I don't know if you've ever tried to do a for loop in Terraform, but uh, it's not very nice. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're not pretty and they're not pretty in arm templates either i i no, have experienced no, no, no. that there as yeah. well the big benefit with what we found we're using palumi is if you're trying to get developers on board with taking ownership of the infrastructure yeah, yeah if they've already they already know their language they don't want to go and learn another language they want to build it as part of their existing projects um if you're going down a devops approach and you want the developers taking ownership having a real programming language that they know is a bit of real benefit thank you I certainly uh, recommend everyone take a look at uh, Sam's blog. He talks a lot about these topics, uh, samcogan.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and Sam, if you have any other links you want to share uh, that you find, you know, in your uh, uh, in your favorites list that you feel others could benefit, please send them over to me and we'll add them with the show notes. Absolutely. Sam, Thank you. On. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.